I'm Yonit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy, two Jews on the news from Kesha Podcasts. How are you doing, Jonathan? I'm doing very well. I'm very excited because we have broadcasting royalty on Unholy this week. We, our very special guest is none other than the founder and boss of This American Life, Ira Glass. And that is very exciting. And it's uh, nice that you mentioned the word royalty, because I assume, knowing you so well, that you are now camped outside Buckingham Palace, waiting, sleeping there for three days, waiting for a glimpse of uh, Her Majesty or her procession. <laughs> you find me in my sleeping bag with a lawn chair <laughs> in hour 38 of my vigil of monarchism <laughs> on the mall as Please I Please send me a picture of that procession. imaginary... The image you just uh, yeah. There's no. There's going to be no photograph of that. Um, in, in my little corner of um, North London, actually, it is. There are two reasons why there is not a huge amount of bunting and flags around here, and I would say, as people, long-time listeners will know, um, very Haredi neighbourhood, and they, you know, they're not big on <laughs> royal jubilees particularly. So there's no uh, red, white, and blue bunting for that reason. But also. Uh, I live uh, in this area, this borough, Hackney, is known for its um, radical tradition. And it's, you know, these things are often notional. But I do notice walking around, there is just less of it here than in other parts of the country and in parts of London. There are a few places uh, where you can see the Union flag, etc. And usually for Jubilees, there have been, because remember, there have been quite a few of these mm -hmm. Jubilees. Normally, there is a street party. At the non-Haredi end of the street, and I'm not kidding, this street has a Haredi end and a non-Haredi end, and the non-Haredi end, there's usually a street party. I haven't yet seen evidence of that, so I don't really know why. Um, I'm not the lead organiser, as you can perhaps imagine. But as yet, that hasn't happened, but it may in the coming days. So you live in the party pooper neighbourhood? You're living in the party pooper neighbourhood, just to, to make it clear? Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, they, they, you know, that's uh, that's a very earnest and po-faced possibility that. But I, you know, I will be honest with you and admit, much as I have misgivings about the nature of a hereditary monarchy in 2022, um, I do quite like these uh, national moments of celebration. And what's so weird is the Queen has ruled for so long that people are genuinely nostalgic for previous jubilees, right? So people of my vintage remember fondly the Silver Jubilee, which is actually when I was 10 in 1977. Um, and so I remember that. And then you think back, what was I doing during the Golden Jubilee 2002? We just had a very young baby then. You know, that's how the mind works. This one is the Platinum Jubilee or Platyjubes, as it's become known. No, I know. really? I know. It's, what is, it's gross, what is wrong it? with you people? What? Why turn it into well, something that sounds adolescent like that? I know, platy-jubes. It's horrible, isn't it? You know, what are you doing for the platy-jubes? At first, people thought this was a myth, but, you know, it started trending on social media. This is a country where people sometimes call dinner, you know, din-dins, and everything is always abbreviated. It's in that kind of banter way of uh, of speaking, so you sort of abbreviate and give it a nickname. Uh, Posh and Becks instead of Beckham, you know, it's that. It's that bit of the English idiom. So Platinum Jubilee has become Platyjubes. Well, we can send a Mazel Tov to Her Majesty from the former loyal subjects of the British Empire in the Levant. I think it's very exciting. I think that she is one of the last living uh, examples of a consensus. I mean, even you who object to monarchy would agree that she is um, a great monarch. Yeah, no, it's quite true. And 
you know, uh, this is how long she's been around that I can be nostalgic for the time when I was a very active Republican, and my first book with subtitle was, uh, uh, you know, The Case for a British Republic. I would say to audiences of fellow Republicans, listen, you are going to have no progress at all uh, while she is there. She is just the exemplary head of state, and you've just got to know when you're beaten. I mean, you know, put your hands up. This one individual is just exceptionally brilliant at being the monarch. And you're right. She is a figure of consensus, and in polarized times, she's the one figure that people do kind of coalesce around, and it's very hard to be against that. But you're right. In terms of our editorial process, you and I exchange little WhatsApps where you go, oh, can we talk about the Queen? <laughs> and I go, you know, really? Do we have to do this? And here's my worry. It's not a, it's not an anti-monarchist worry. It's the worry that, oh, isn't this just some kind of British niche? And our show is really about Israel and the diaspora, two halves of the Jewish world. And um, and I sort of worry about being in a British niche. But what you always remind me of, and I have to say my travels around the world always remind me of, everybody around the planet is interested in the royal family. They are. And sometimes it's the only thing about Britain that they find interesting, you know, that you can go to the furthest flung corner of the globe and there's someone there who will say, oh, please tell me about Harry and Meghan, you know, or have you met the Queen? <laughs> have I told you about the time I have met the Queen? Have we ever done that? No, you waited until this Platinum Jubilee to tell me the story? Yes, please tell uh, the story. It is true you. that for the Golden Jubilee, the Queen in 2002, so to mark her 50th year on the on the throne at Windsor Castle. And that's quite unusual. They normally do things at Buckingham Palace in London. But at Windsor Castle, they invited the press to come for a sort of media reception. At that point, the Windsors, the royal family, were having a, it'd been a choppy few years for them over Diana and so on. So they needed the press on site. And my honest admission to you is that it is one of the very few times I have been rendered totally speechless. <laughs> And she came over to our little cluster, and there's all these rules about when you're meant to speak, you're not meant to speak unless spoken to. All these other journalists next to me, I think they ignored those rules and began talking to her about it. And she asks this question, have you come far? Did you have a good journey? That's her opening thing. And they started talking to her about roads and motorway building. And I could not think of a single thing on that <laughs> subject to say. And so I smiled inanely. I looked like some... Um, gibbering idiot um really because i just had this kind of simpering smile on my face as i tried desperately to think of something to say and then by the time something had popped into my head about you know road safety she had moved on mm. so the queen rendered your co-host utterly story. mute at least someone does at least someone can at least we know that um but we also have to mention that we're in a bit of a festive mood in the unholy desk as well right because yes. it is our diamond jubilee or dimey jubes if you would call it that way. It's our 60th episode. And, you know, I'm, I'm very excited about this. It's like, uh, I want to quote Anna from Frozen. Like she says, I don't know if I'm elated or gassy, but I'm somewhere in that zone. So I'm very, <laughs> I'm very happy about this. Really, I think we should like celebrate this for a moment before moving on. 60 glorious 60 editions. glorious. Who thought we would survive home. me giving Boris Johnson the Mensch Award? But we did. So I think it's Somehow we came through it. And yet our policy is the very reverse of the monarchy, because the monarchy's reverse is to policy is to say nothing. And we've managed to reach our Diamond Jubilee by saying quite a lot. Quite a lot. And another, that's a lot of talk, 60 episodes. Indeed, indeed. So as the Duke of, uh, what is it, Hackney North and um, Stoke Newington? And the, that's Duch right, yeah. the Duchess of Central Tel Aviv and the Israeli Coastal Plain? I think we can... Uh, 
continue with our program and talk a little I bit. I like about that you've thought about your title. I thought about it. What do you think about it? I mean, you can give me a different one if you want. You're the... Well, you know, you can actually do that. You can have a double title and it can be one place in um, Britain and then one place that isn't. So I love Lord how serious Lebedev. you got. You, like, you became very serious now. I did. But Lord Lebedev, who's the Russian, the son of the, a Russian oligarch, is Lord Lebedev of, I think I want to say Kensington and Siberia. Okay. I mean, and, but of course, our historical-minded listeners will want to know about Herbert Samuel, first governor of Mandatory Palestine, who was Lord Samuel of Toxteth, neighbourhood in Liverpool, and Mount Carmel. How about that? That is nice. I think that is a great title. That is Lord very to- nice. Lord, Does it, can, it, can I steal that one? So uh, well, you've now got the whole coastal plain. But you know, if there's a mount that you would like to make yours, then make that mount yours. You need now's the moment. I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about it. Can I have? Um, I'll think of something by the end of the show. Okay. Yeah. No. Don't worry. The queen is not in such a huge hurry to hand you a peerage that you need to say it right now. Uh, but it could happen. So there's been some news since we last spoke, which um, we should talk it, about. Indeed. I mean, I think we that means we're shifting gears from uh, celebrations that look festive to celebrations that aren't completely festive. Would that be an interesting uh, way to connect it? Maybe. Okay. So we're talking about the flag march. Uh, in Jerusalem on uh, Sunday. Biggest flag march to date, about 20,000, maybe even more uh, people marching in it. Now, now we have to say something just to set the stage. The flag march is is, uh, originally intended to sort of celebrate the unification of uh, Jerusalem after the 1967 war in which the Israeli army marched into uh, the eastern part of the capital, took over uh, the Kotel and the Wailing Wall, what was left of the temple, of course, and the Temple Mount. A huge military victory, an historic event. But having said that, we have to mention that this specific event, Yom Yerushalayim, the flag march in the celebration of the unification of Jerusalem, has never become this all-encompassing Israeli event. It is an event of a specific part of the Israeli society, the religious nationalists, uh, and as such also uh, uh, brings forth um, incidents of, uh, of, of racism against the Palestinian uh, residents of uh, Jerusalem. The organizers always say, you know, there are 20,000 people, there are only a couple of tens of these incidents. It doesn't matter. It taints the whole event. And, and it, again, it is an event that since it started in the mid-70s, it kind of failed to um, uh, bring in all of the Israeli society. You've um, summarized it, I think, extremely well, and you've identified, I think, my problem with it, which is that it is, um, well, look, okay, so two levels of sort of problem with it. First, it is a festival of the uh, ultra-right, and it seems inherently provocative to me, and I covered for a long time uh, the conflict in Northern Ireland, and every year in that conflict, there used to be a huge flashpoint around parades, where one community, in that case, the Protestant Unionists, would march through mainly Catholic neighborhoods, uh, or they would march generally through all kinds of areas. But sometimes they went through heavily Catholic neighborhoods. And it was always a flashpoint of trouble. And everyone involved knew it would be. And why do that? Why go out of your way to start a fight? In this case, it's not as if this is some huge historic thing, like a religious pilgrimage with thousands of years of, of, of heritage that has to be sort of honoured. It is actually a relatively new thing, I think, uh, you'll tell me. But I mean, I think 70s, it's yeah. Old. It started as a spontaneous yeah. uh, event and it became more and more sort of uh, official. But look, if you have a year, and we have to remind our listeners this, last year, um, the Hamas uh, threatened that if it passes through uh, certain areas 
it will sh- launch rockets uh, to- towards Israel. Benjamin Netanyahu's prime minister changed the route, and yet Hamas still uh, launched these rockets. I think it, you know, the Israeli government is saying, we're not going to change or, or, or again, uh, do something differently because we are threatened by this. So it makes the whole thing a huge event, which really wasn't before that. And, and, yes. and again, uh, you know, this is his... It's it's a strange thing to say that this year, because there were no rockets, no, you know, extensive violence, and it kind of passed without, I don't know, almost without a hitch, it was actually a success for the Bennett government. The, low, the bar is set quite low, but it really was. What I don't like about it is that we all know the sort of tortured history of Jerusalem, despite the rhetoric about it being a united city. It isn't really a, a completely uni- unified city. There are Arab neighbourhoods and Jewish neighbourhoods, and people from one side will admit to you that they never, ever go to the other side. People in West Jerusalem will say, look, I don't go there to East Jerusalem, but there's this rhetoric of unification. And what I don't like is the march to walk into those neighbourhoods, waving flags, is to say, in your face, Palestinians, you know, you lost. And this is now weak. We're the boss. We're the masters around here. I don't like that. I don't like those pictures that went around the world, of which you'll know about, of uh, of young nationalists sort of pepper spraying elderly Palestinian women. All of it's horrible to me. The deeper point I was going to say, and in a way it even relates to our opening little bit about you know the jubilee and everything. This there is a side of nationalism, all nationalism, that I struggle to connect with and. Zionism is no exception here. I know that makes me out of step with a lot of Jews, let alone Israelis. But there is a gut feeling that I have there. And this thing, the March of the Flags, brings it out even before it turns ugly and violent and sort of aggressive. Even if it didn't. like, I mean, because the interesting thing is, by the way, I said it, it has become a part of the religious nationalist part of Israeli society. What is often left out of reporting is the fact that there's also a, a gender separation. There are women marching in a separate march in a different route and men marching in in this route that we're talking about um, um, through the Muslim quarter. And it's very interesting because you don't hear about violence or racists. It's just a dance and it's walking around with flags. And yes, it's from the center of Jerusalem, the western part to the eastern part. I don't know if many Israelis would find that problematic. People just dancing, walking around with a flag. What turns it into an event of this kind of magnitude is indeed these racist incidents and the the violence that, that, that sort of erupts when this happens. And I think that's kind of a different thing to, to notice. There's also been in, this, in Israeli society this week a huge debate about Palestinian flags and a law that the Likud wanted to, to submit saying that you shouldn't uh, wave Palestinian flags in institutions that are funded by uh, the state. A lot of angst around flags. We have enough uh, reasons to be upset about many things. I think that if we could just uh, maybe lower the tensions around that. Uh, just to point out, Jonathan, that we, we I, I talked about the fact that it is a success for the Naftali Bennett government. We are now not in the situation where that really matters anymore for, for them because we are seeing really the end of this government. Uh, I don't know when, want to say any day now, but any week uh, for sure. Has something happened that makes you say that? Yes, uh, something happened, and it's, it sounds. I'm, I'm kind of uh, worried about a deja vu effect here because every week I say to you, the law that will be submitted next week might be the thing that topples uh, the government. But the law that is supposed to uh, be submitted this week is the law that extends the emergency uh, measure that is renewed every five years um, regarding the settlements, which means that uh, criminal law, key civil laws will apply to Israelis living in the settlements. 
I wanted to say this is a technicality, but I knew there would be smoke coming out of your ears. So it's not a technicality in the sense of what this law means, but the extension of it is somewhat of a technicality. But Ram, the United Arab List, says that it won't vote for it. Gidon Sao, who is the justice minister and comes from the right, says that it will not pass. Like, it will not be, if it doesn't pass, then this coalition has no reason uh, to survive. This is a big deal, especially when you hear ramblings, the background of Gidon Sao in conversations with Netanyahu and the Likud about possible and possible alternate government in this Knesset without going to elections. That means there's an option of Netanyahu becoming prime minister. That's always an option here. But that could happen. Uh, it, yeah. it looks like a closer option than it, than it did a month ago. And so to our very special guest. Ira Glass is the host, co-founder, and executive producer of This American Life and is largely credited for heralding the podcast revolution, also dubbed Godfather of Podcasts in certain publications, also credited for reviving public radio. The first news program to win the Pulitzer Prize for Audio Recording, also Peabody Awards, Edward R. Murrow Award. To read the whole list, we'd need an accompanying podcast. But what might be occasionally overlooked was that he was a correspondent for a program hosted by Jonathan Friedland in the mid-90s. See, the surprise, that? the surprise on our face. <laughs> this was a show for the BBC called American Graffiti. And it came out in the 94, 95. And one of our correspondents was a cub reporter in Chicago called Ira Glass. Oh, my goodness. I, I'm afraid I don't remember this at all. What did I cover for you? You would do, I think, kind of slice of life stuff out of the, you know, the middle, the heartland, as in it wasn't DC, it wasn't politics. It was what was going on that week um, on your patch, really. I know, it's amazing, but you were on very regularly. But I, it was 94, 95. <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah, no, <laughs> I don't you, remember this. We're not making this up, w- it really happened. I was, I was on the BBC? Yeah, it was a BBC show on what was then a new network called Five Live. It's still up and running, but it was a new show, new network. I mean, you know, you've left a strong mark on my memory, so maybe it wasn't (laughs) that regularly. But just tell me now, if we go back to the mid-90s, what stage of evolution was what you are famous for and This American Life? What stage of evolution was that? Was that just a gleam in your eye then? What, what what, What stage were you in that development? That was just before I started This American Life. And so the things that we do in This American Life, I was very much doing in all my reporting for public radio in the United States, and I'm guessing in the reporting for you, which is I was really interested in how do you tell a story about that tries to capture everyday life but do it with um, do it so a, it was like way more entertaining than public broadcasting usually is, um, and and uh, and that meant just really trying to dig into uh, – uh, plot like like there would be a plot that would unfold and there would be st- story twists and and you'd be invested in some character and and the characters would be three dimensional and um and just designing the whole thing so it had funny moments and emotional moments and and so I was doing that in document I mean they weren't documentaries they were they were stories on the on the daily news shows that National Public Radio the American version of the BBC has so they sent me into a high school for a year. Uh, Taft High School to do stories on on how they were trying to fix that school, and I would file every few weeks on just like how it was going, and there was a set of characters who we were following throughout the year, and it bombed. It was a terrible. It was one of those things as a reporter. It was terrible for everybody involved, which meant that it was good for me <laughs> as the reporter. And then the following year, I did a school, a similar thing in a school that was improving and really like remarkably to see. Like they didn't have special money. They didn't have. It was just a very well run school and a very. Um, in a neighborhood where usually the schools underperform. It was fa- like just very smart people 
running a neighborhood school. And so, and so again, in that one, we got to know characters. And, and at the same time, I was doing things like I was putting uh, writer David Sedaris uh, onto Morning Edition. Uh, he would do these little commentaries that I, would, that I would produce and put music underneath, and those would run during the morning drive time show in the United States. So, so like all the elements of things that later became This American Life were, were, were bubbling up, uh, but I hadn't put them together in one show of my own. And honestly, I thought if I didn't get to it fast, somebody else was going to beat me to the idea. It seemed like such an obvious idea. Because it's, it's amazing, isn't it, um, that it, like as it is with many revolutions, right, that if they're successful, it's kind of difficult to remember what, what happened before. But I mean, the way that you brought forth this revolution, I mean, you talked in a way that people weren't talking on the radio. You told the story in a way that people weren't before you showed up. Uh, in the scene. I think people may, I mean, it's 25 years, but people kind of uh, need to realize just how revolutionary that was. Yeah. Like now there, there are many, many radio hosts who, who sound the way I do, where you're just trying to talk in the way that you really talk in real yeah. life. Um, and, uh, but yeah, that was, that was a new thing. And in fact, it was an, it was a hindrance into talking stations to picking up our show in the States versus in, in Britain. Um, I don't know. I don't know how the system works in Israel, but but um, but in the states, like you have to convince each radio, each public radio station to to take you. And some of them would just be like, they'd be like, "Well, there is a good reporter. Like we like his stories on the news shows." But when are you going to get like a real host, like somebody <laughs> with a real authority? Like, and we would be like, "Sorry, this is this is all, you know this is this is what we got." And um, and uh, and 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 it's funny too to see that um. I don't know. It's it's like that that part of it that 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 that's something that other people saw the utility of, like saw that oh this sounds good, it feels good on the radio, like like we we like none of that. I didn't think that that was going to catch on. It's I partly really because, isn't it? You were pushing against what was a very sort of stuffy medium. Public radio it was very formal. I, I mean, I was obviously there in the nineties. Remember, it was it was kind of stiff backed and formal, and so you were pushing back against that, and now. Because of you, very part, you know, partly, largely because of you and this American life, it has become almost the kind of normal way of fronting, particularly podcasts. It's a style now. Yeah. So I, I'm interested to, from your point of view, what is actually the difference if there is one left anymore between the grammar of a podcast and the grammar of radio? Well, on the news shows on public radio in the States, and I think it's true on the BBC also, like news presenters still sound like news presenters. They they don't they don't talk in that style. So it is is the, so it is still very different. And they structure their stories differently. They structure their stories in a much more traditional as they should. <laughs> like here's what here's the most important thing you need to know that just happened today. Like that that comes first. Like and, and I appreciate that. I don't want them to to like go back to the beginning of the story and tell me from the beginning. Like I want them to tell me what happened today. So, yeah. so, so I, so I think that you know the, there's a limit to 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 what the revolution has done, and um, and you know, but in a certain style of podcast, um, you know, this this has taken hold. And then and then the, and then the other thing that happened is that at some point, you know, we we start we started a spinoff show, Serial, and that was an experiment. And the experiment of that. Honestly, like now, like when I even say what it was, 
it doesn't even sound like that could be true, but it, I swear it was true. We like the experiment of serial, and the reason why we called it serial was was we were doing a documentary story, and and it would start in one episode, and then it would continue over seven or eight episodes until it was finally resolved. And we had never heard anybody do a documentary story that would stretch out the way that a television, you know, a bingeable TV show would do. And we honestly didn't know if people would listen. Like the way that that Sarah Koenig, the the host, and Julie Snyder, the the producer, thought about it is like we'll do this thing and nobody's going to listen so we can do whatever we want. And then at some point in the middle of it, it really caught on and caught on in such, in such a big way. Um, I feel like, I feel like if anything, it's, it's really serial that, that announced to people the scale that podcasts could be like, like, I don't even know the recent numbers, but the last time I looked a year or two ago, 17 million people had downloaded every Whoa. episode of that first season, which wow. is the number of people who watched like the Game of Thrones finale. Like that's, <laughs> that's like a crazy number. And, um, and it just announced to the world, oh, there's a form where you can like tell a story and it'll stretch out the way like a bingeable TV show will and have the same feelings. You'll listen for the same reasons. You'll just want to find out like what happened. You'll really care about the people in it. And um, versus the thing that we were reacting to, which was a kind of public broadcasting where people listened, I think, because they believed it would make them better people, you know. <laughs> and um, That's eat and your greens, journalism. Eat your greens, yeah, exactly. And we felt like, well, well, our goal should be a kind of journalism where we give you everything you get from the eat your greens journalism, but, it's, but you don't do it. You're, not, you're doing it because you're entertained. Like, 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 we, like, like you're doing it because you want to hear what happens next or you, or you want to hear what happens to these people. And, um, and, and it's out for fun. And and not embarrassed to be out for fun. Like, that's not like a side product or something like we're holding our hand over. Like, that's its mission. And we just thought, like, well, you must be able to make something that does that and, you know, also is journalism and, you know, we'll investigate things and we have fact checkers and it's all true and, and we uncover stories that other people don't uncover and get voices in there. Like, so that was the that was the goal. I want to, we're talking about the kind of beginnings, but I want to take you even further back, which is you at 19, uh, if I'm not mistaken, half the mm. summer uh, working in NPR and half at the University of Maryland Hospital. You were pre-med. <laughs> yes. Uh, can yes. I can I take you back to that scene where you tell your Jewish parents that you're not going to become a doctor? Can you kind of tell <laughs> tell us how that unfolded? If only it were one scene. Uh, that had to be repeated many, many times over the course of like almost. I mean, my my parents were like middle class Jewish parents who grew up without a lot of money and they themselves struggled to like make it into the middle class and like, you know, and uh, and they were very concerned about their children making money and they had like, and that was sort of like a bright kid who liked science and they're like, well, you absolutely should be a doctor. And, and, and it was very confusing to them and, um, and, and it took them some years, but to their credit, they came along and literally there was a, I mean, I, there was a, they, they throughout my twenties and early thirties, they constantly told me I was making a mistake, and there and that wow. it, there was still time to go back to med school. Um, though sometimes for when a I get decade, sp- they kept telling you that for a decade. Oh, the Jewish parents, you need a decade is <laughs> that's a small interval <laughs> for the nothing. Jewish parents. That's nothing. I know. Okay, we okay. were in the desert well. for forty years. <laughs> right, they were playing <laughs> the long years. game. <laughs> Ten years. That's nothing. And and truthfully, like, it's funny, like, just recently to, like, write speeches and stuff, I went back to some of my work from that time, and it's not good. Like, I can see how a parent hearing it would just be like, well, you don't have any talent. Like, why are you doing this? You can still be a doctor. And, um, 
Yeah, like like sometimes when I give speeches, I play something from my eighth year doing it, and it's terrible. And like you could be a surgeon in eight years, you know, and um, and so it wasn't crazy. My mom finally gave up five years into this American life. So at that point, I'm 41 years old, and um, and and she called me after I was on television for the first time. I was on an American show called David Letterman, which was like a big iconic late night show here, and um. I had never been on TV before, and um, and afterwards she called me, and it was like half joking, but it was half serious. And she was like, "Okay, you won. You don't have to be a doctor." <laughs> this plays, by the way, to every radio person's deepest anxiety because it doesn't count until it's on television. Oh so well, my god, I, I noted that as well. Yes, I know. Here's the thought I wanted to ask you, which is. Jonathan Sachs, who was chief rabbi in Britain, who has, since his death has actually got a huge following for the podcasts of his various talks. People are listening to them all around the world now. Hmm. Um, he, one of his observations was that Jew, Jewish culture was an auditory culture, he said, right from the Shema with its invoca- injunction, hear, O Israel, and the ban on graven images. He says, when the rest of the world is a visual culture, Jews were an auditory culture. We're about hearing and listening. And I'm interested to know the extent to which you think there's anything in that. Is this medium, radio, something that goes with the grain of your upbringing and culture and so on? Wow. What a pretty thought. And how convenient for me if it's true. (laughs) Right. It's good for you. I don't know. I mean... I mean, it's funny, growing up with the Jewish culture that I grew up with in the, I mean, I'm old, in the 60s and 70s in the United States, like, Jewish culture meant, like, Broadway shows and Fiddler on the Roof and Barbara Streisand and, and and you know, like, Jews created a certain kind of comedy on television. So, and of course, at the heart of that is something auditory, but, but I, 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 to me, that seems a little small. Like to me, to me, it's it's actually the desire to to entertain and envelop at the same time that um, you know that you that you that you're trying to tell your story. I I mean, like when you go to a Holocaust museum, it's so designed, like almost by Hollywood. You know what I mean? To like to work on you. Like it's like it's machined by people who know how to get to you. You know, and your feelings, and uh, and so, I, like, I think of that as being so much more central to uh, Jewish culture than simple auditory experience. And in that way, I, I have to say, our show really conforms to that. Like, like our show does have like sort of the aesthetic values of like Fiddler on the Roof. You know what I mean? Like where we start off with like a funny story and then try to build up the stakes to something more serious um, until finally the story is about like the most serious things that it could be, like parents disappointing their children and children, you know, and parents trying to deal with their children, not not marrying other Jews or not becoming the doctors they wish they'd been. You know, this this is all leading us to uh, think that there's going to be this American Life, the musical, very soon. But um, <laughs> we, you know, I, you're talking about Israel. And, uh, the episode you did here, uh, 2002, uh, it's mm-hmm. called "Give It to Them." Uh, by the way, if you listen to it today, what's terribly depressing about it is that 
nothing changed. You could just press play on the episode, right? Besides the fact that Ariel Sharon and Yasser Arafat are not part of it. And yeah. it ends with you saying you could order the, order the tape of this episode. It's 2002. <laughs> but besides that, nothing is, is changed. You say there's something that I found that really speaks to, and I think it's important for our listeners to kind of understand just how deep you go into, you know, the place that you, you visit. In this case, it was Israel. And you say there, when you live here, you talk about Israel, you split yourself in two. You have knowledge of violence and you decide at some level that it is not going to touch your life. I think it's very, very accurate to the way Israelis live. Can you tell us a little about what you were surprised by and what your thoughts, I mean, maybe this is a very general question, but what your thoughts are of Israel 20 years after this this episode? I feel like I don't have profound thoughts about Israel. I mean, I, like, I have what I read on Haaretz. And mm-hmm. you know, in the, in the American news, um, and so I don't want to try to offer insights about Israel um, at all. If anything, like in terms of like the the way politics is going there, it seems like it's further along the path that the United States is setting down, um, mm-hmm. with just the the way it's divided, and um, and honestly, with the strength of of the right wing, you know, and the way it's closing that it has closed off like possibilities for the left. But um, I don't know. Like, like I, when I came, everything was new to me. Like, I remember being on the flight, and I had never heard anybody speak conversational Hebrew. I remember hearing somebody order a Coke in Hebrew, and I was like, whoa, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> like, I had it never heard— It sounds holy. <laughs> it just—I was like, oh, wow. Like, and yeah, it was just like every part of it. And then— um, you know, I just I had never been, and so I had all the all the feelings that people had. There, there was there was one thing that somebody said to me that I think we put in the episode, though it's been so long since I've I've, I've heard the episode that I've thought about so many times since. Um, uh, he, he, just reading the news, where 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 they said uh, they said Americans think that the problem between Israelis and Palestinians is that we just don't know each other. And if we were to sit down at a table and we would get to know each other and talk through what each of us needs and how each of us sees our futures, of course, we'll be able to come to some common understanding and make some common future. And I remember the person who said it said, this is a very Christian idea. He says, he says the fact is, we know the Arabs and they know us. We know the Palestinians and they know us. And, and like we eat the same food. Like we look the same. <laughs> like, like everything's the same. And he said, that's the problem, is that we, we know each other and we don't like each other. So he said, I think, I'm not sure I'm getting the very end of the quote right, but I feel like, oh, yeah, I, th- I, I don't know. I was very um, perceptive about what Americans think of Israel. You mentioned what is happening and how far Israel is going uh, to the right. And I want to pull this back to talk about, just kind of shift the lens back to the United States. Because I think one of the more impressive things about uh, this American life is just how much empathy you have for the people that you talk with, and through you, the listeners as well are, are, are feeling the same way. But at the same time, American public discourse over the 20, past 25 years has become like the opposite of empathy, right? It's, it's really merciless. Do, do you despair at that? Does that make you, you know, look and say, but we've been doing something completely different for the past 25 years, and so many people have been listening. Why didn't that kind of, I don't know, percolate into the rest of the, the discourse? Um, I, I do. Was that a convoluted that. question? To no, I totally understood that question. No, no, like, I, like I, you know, I, do, I do despair at at the complete lack of empathy or the inability of 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 anybody to listen to anyone's point of view. Mm-hmm. 
that's different from their own sympathetically in this country right now. It is very, very rare. And we're constantly looking for stories where people are trying to bridge the gap and it's so hard to find them, truthfully. And that's a really different thing than when we first went on the air 25 years ago. And it's certainly very different than when I was a kid. And, you know, Lyndon Johnson could pull, could pull together like Republicans and Democrats to to make the Great Society programs, which whatever you think of them, that was, you know, things were bipartisan. You know, they, like it was just politics was was just functioned in a different way. And I think, you know, some combination of um, cable news and especially social media has just, just coarsened everything. So everybody's in their separate camps. And, and, and I really think that journalism has not figured out a way to bridge the gap. Like, I feel like it's like we're fighting a war without, without weapons or a strategy to try to get people to listen. And they don't listen. And there's a ton of misinformation. And people don't care to hear the facts. And like, they're casualties. Like, people die in this, in this misinformation war. You know what I mean? Like, like all the people who, who didn't believe the vaccines would save them and didn't get them and died. It's hundreds of thousands of Americans. When you talk about the two camps not listening, I, I'm suspecting, but you'll know, that that is literally true in the sense of, I'm guessing your audience is blue state America. It's, um, you know, in the, you could caricature it, you know, people who listen to public radio and eat at Whole Foods and vote Democrat and get, did wear masks and got the vaccine. I'm I'm guessing that's a kind of tribe that you speak no, to. But tell no. me I'm, I'm wrong. No, no, no. Fortunately, like public radio, like, I mean, it's funny, I haven't looked at the, the numbers in the last few years, but like throughout my entire time in public radio, like the audience has been has been split between uh, people who identify as Democrats, people who identify as independents, and and people who identify as Republicans. And for a long time, like for Republicans, what public radio was was if you lived in a red state, you couldn't get a good newspaper. You know what I mean? And so you listen to public radio, and then occasionally there'd be something that you wouldn't agree with the politics out, but you knew you were getting kind of like. Oh, here's what happened today with some depth to it. And so, like, people accepted it. And so, fortunately, like, I, I feel like our audience does include people like that. And the podcast audience also, we somehow in, in podcasting, we're just identified as a podcast show. Like, there, there are people, um, there are people who, who don't think of us as a public radio show. I think lots of people, actually. And um, I remember when um, when President Trump was elected, Zoe Chase, one of our reporters, went to the Deplorables Ball. These were the, the sort of the online trolls who basically felt like they elected Donald Trump. And um, and uh, a very fun-loving group, actually. And so at this party, like, people would come up to Zoe and wow. be like, you know, like, I love your show. You know, like, you know, these right-wing Trump supporters. Like, and, 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 uh, and, like, truthfully, like, we really, like, we treat them like anybody else on our show. Like, they, you know, the, Zoe did stories about them back when Trump was getting elected and very much trying to understand, like, who are you? What are you trying to do? Why, you know, like, why is this the way, you, you know, I feel like, we're, you know, we're, 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 you know, we have the advantage as a documentary show of just being able to say, like, yeah, we want to just understand you and, and go in. And pe- I hope people feel like they get a fair shake. And so in that way, like, I feel like we get a little bit of leeway. That said, I think generally, um, you know, it, like, it's, it, I don't believe that we're convincing anybody of anything anymore. And and I feel like when I was younger in journalism, I, I did think that that was possible. I didn't think it was common. Like like it's it, like I think I think none of us changes our opinion because of it's so rare. If you can think of like, did you ever change your opinion from like from you know on any big issue on abortion, the Mideast crisis, like anything from something you read in the Guardian or like something you heard on the radio? Like like what what article could possibly do that? You know that's not how our that's not how our political opinions form. So I think it's naive to think like oh as journalists we like 
we put something out in the world and, and it changes people's minds. So I did believe that when I was 20. Like, I don't believe that. Like, the empirical evidence says otherwise. What's been interesting to me is something that I never understood or anticipated, which is you can change people's minds if you create a kind of um, virtual reality. What do you mean? Like, like, you know, when Fox News will take up, when Fox News and the right-wing media in our country all kind of move in lockstep to assert something about uh, voter fraud, you know, for example, through sheer repetition and through so many examples, like I don't think a single journalist would be able to accomplish what, you know, what hundreds of people and and people online and people repeating it, like 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 I do think that journalism can can change the way people perceive an issue, but but I think that you have to kind of have an army. You know what I mean? And and you have to be in there every day fighting the fight. Um, and obviously, like, fact-based journalists are doing that as well. But, um, and, and, you know, and there's excellent fact-based journalism every day. But, um, but, but I don't know. I never, I never thought about it when I was a kid that like, oh no, the way to actually change people's minds is to, is to create something like Fox News, like that you would just be on all the time and be pretty entertaining, like be pretty compelling, you know, like, like say stuff that just gets you excited. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's pretty, that's good. That's good entertainment values. Like they, they, they know what they're doing. Like they're competent. And uh, like that, that would be the thing that could change people's minds. I, uh, I think we should lighten the moon with a little bit of David Sedaris, and I have to, this is a place where I confess <laughs> that uh, my favorite ever episode is uh, is really David Sedaris, The Americans in Paris. So my favorite This oh. American Life is actually not in America. Um, but there's this quote that kind of stuck in my mind uh, that you write about him. And you, you talk about this discrepancy is just sort of, he's very successful at this point, or beginning to be very successful, and he's a best-selling author. But he's kind of this walking around in, in France and kind of feeling like this nobody, because no one's talking this broken French. And you say this, I think for most people, uh, there's a normal balance that has to happen of believing that there are somebody to believing that there are nobody. And I think that what happened to him is that the somebody side of that equation got crazily inflated. And so the nobody side had to hyperinflate to catch up. So we talked a lot. I hope we talked about I, I want to turn this on you and say, I mean, we know the somebody that you are. How do you balance that out with us with a nobody side? I mostly feel like a nobody, like like <laughs> like walking around. Nobody knows who I am. And when I meet people, it's, I don't, I'm not famous and I'm podcast famous. Like I'm not famous in the kind of way where like, you know, when I check in at the airport, they're like, oh, sir. Or like, I can't, like even at a restaurant in New York, like we don't, you know, we, we wait for an hour and a half like everybody else, you know? <laughs> and, and fortunately, like the people who I work with and, you know, the people who I love like, <laughs> give me no special difference. <laughs> like, so it, like it, uh, you know. I, I, I feel I feel like and then and then you know and then I come to Israel and like when we do a public event then I'll feel like a somebody at the public event you know what I mean but like the rest of the time I feel like I'm going to be safely feeling like come on the head of our person. podcast department when I said Ira Glass is coming on he I think he had to he hyperventilated and said it's Orson Welles so come on I mean I don't think it's that it's that simple but okay I'll I'll try and buy that answer. But it's true. Like if like think about what the daily life of anybody who's making a show is. It's exactly the same whether people know who you are. It's exactly the same in a way whether your show is successful or not. Do you know what I mean? Like it's still like a scramble to figure out like what are we putting in the air this week and the week after and the week after and then you do the edit and it's not as good as you want it to be and then you try to make it better and you should we kill the story now let's try again to make it better. Like my day is so exactly 
And then there's like, I do like eight or 10 hours of mixed notes each week still. Like, I mean, other people do them too, but like, you know what I mean? Like just going through and being like, no, insert a pause of 0.3 seconds here and like start the music here. And like, do you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's just a, like, it's a meticulous thing making stuff. And like, and it, you don't feel important. Like, you really don't. Like, if you're normal, you don't. Like, if, I mean, I think there's like people who are crazy people who just have a hyperinflated sense of themselves at all points. But if anything, in a way that may or may not be very Jewish, but certainly is like rooted in who I was as a child. Like I, I, I never, I just never think that. I like that you're so intricately involved still. Um, I think that I don't know how good that is for your mm-hmm. health and well-being, but I like that you're still doing that. I'm interested on the on the actual sort of fine-grained nature of the medium. You made this big change, and like you say, in the 1990s, you were thinking, "I better get on with it because someone else is going to do this." quick you know if i don't do it someone else will is this a medium that is ripe for another reinvention is there another turn of the wheel that i i know i'm not imagining but because you thought of it once can you see another way this medium could change that's a really interesting question you mean podcasting or radio Mm, both yeah i mean I mean, it's funny. I feel like in its current form, I feel like it's still kind of living up to its potential, you know, like the number of really great podcasts that use the medium well and where the writing is great and they really pick the story well and they plot it out right. Like you're still pretty, it's still pretty rare. Like in a way it's the same as television. Like there's a ton of television, but like, and there's a a ton of great television, but like, I, I don't, I don't know. The, the proportion of like stuff you want to watch to how much stuff there is. Um, I'm sorry, I'm digressing and and not giving you a perfectly usable quote here. Um, I mean, I, like I I I, th- I think um, I, the answer is like I I can't see what the next thing is. And if anything, like I'm I I would be excited if if this stage went better. Like if there were more people making interesting stuff. Using, using the formats that exist now, you know. I think it's a kind of golden age we're in now. People said that about TV when it was The Wire and The Sopranos and all that. I think the audio medium, speech radio, I mean, broadly, broadly defined, is in a kind of golden age because these kinds of long-form series, there was nothing like it 25, 30 years ago. And even in the BBC where documentaries were good, you know, they really were good a long time ago. This is something wholly new, and it's um, hmm. partly down to you. So I do get that that we don't need a kind of reinvention because we're still on the first one. But but it does beg the question because you set kind of the golden standard, and now everyone has a podcast. I mean, you know, oh my god, Barack Obama and Bruce Springsteen, why? and the Daily, and the New why? <laughs> You're like talking I... to two Jews in London and in Tel Aviv that have a podcast together. Like everyone has a podcast. Do you? Is that the the vibe is like, great, everyone's joining the party that I started? Or the vibe is like, guys, get off my cloud? Oh, like, no, what that's your... fine. Everybody can join. Like, it, to me, it's really funny that Barack Obama, like, would have a podcast. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like, like I don't know. Like, for me, even, like, the fact that David Remnick, like, the editor of The New Yorker, who's an amazing editor and, like, like such a wonderful writer and journalist, like, in addition, decided that he was going to do a pod, he was going to host a radio <laughs> show and a podcast. I just feel like, why do you have to do your job and then do my job, too? Do you know what I mean? Like, like you know, like, all these people like like prince harry and megan like they they starting a podcast you know what i mean like 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 why like like they seem like lovely people like i support them i welcome them in as fellow fellow podcasters like the water's warm 
like come like 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 totally welcome cold them. beer but like it's just it like like it's just it seems to me it just seems like such a particular choice i actually got a chance to ask them this question why are you doing this and and to harry and megan yeah and um and 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 they and they answered their answer they put it in different words but the way that i put it would put it is they really loved the uh, lack of adult supervision like like the, the like i think especially for him there's a feeling of of the way that his family story has been told by the mainstream press has been very disturbing for understandable reasons. And he's like, he really just likes that they could make something that they completely control and there's not a lot of bosses. There's no bosses, you know what I mean? And and I think that that there's something to that, you know, like they could just make the thing they want to make and it's, and it's so simple. Yeah, I think uh, the big difference is that your podcasts and broadcasts are all about other people. You're asking questions of other people. But the Obamas and the Springsteens and the Harry and Megans, it's about them. And so that's why it's in a way it's not the same business you're in. They're not coming into your business, I don't think. That's nice of you to say. I mean, I, 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 to, to, to Megan and Harry's credit, I do think they will be interviewing other people. But yeah, Obamas and Springsteens. Obamas and Springsteens had some interesting moments. There's one moment in, in one of the early ones where they say this thing to each other where I was like, oh, that is so real. Where, where, um, where um, I think Obama says, because he's kind of the better talker of the two, where he says, well, he's trying to explain to the audience, here's how we got close, is like we met each other at some official thing and our wives were chatting and our wives really got close first. And he said, and, and he said that um, he kind of acknowledged like both of us are of a, of a weird type where, where like we think that we should be the one to stand in front of a stadium of people and be the one talking. And he said that my wife, he said, like Obama said, like Michelle told me like, you're both crazy people. That you think that you're both crazy and like, and there's really crazy stuff that drives that. And she says, but Bruce has done the work. You know what I mean? Like Bruce has really tried to figure it out. Like Bruce is right. He's like, you should get to know him better because you need to do more like what he's done. Because if you've read Bruce Springsteen's book, he really is like very introspective about what, what in the world made me like this nutter. And, um, and he does such a good job. That book is so good. Um, but anyway, like, yeah, and I thought, like, that is completely real. I really believe that, and I really appreciate it that they shared what is really a pretty frank thing to say. To like, Maybe too frank. That's a very sincere project they're doing for God knows why. Um, I, I can't let you go without asking you because my mm. day job or evening job is being the anchor of the evening news here in Israel. And it seems to me like when you started out, there were, like, the very clear authoritative voices, right? The three networks, all men, of course, Tom Brokaw and Peter mm-hmm. Jennings and Dan Rather, all men, heaven forbid, will let women do the news. Um, and 25 years later, like the authoritative voice is is sort of dissipating, right? I mean, what is authoritative? What is the voice? There's so many anchor men, there's so many channels, even anchor women. Could you have thought like 25 years ago that the person left standing would be actually the person who said, I don't want to do the authoritative thing. I want to do the storytelling thing of what I find interesting. Is that something that you kind of could have imagined? No, absolutely not. No, I didn't think that we were going to win. Like, I didn't even see it as that kind of war. I just saw it as like, oh, we're making this little indie movie over here. And then, like, you know, the big Hollywood movies will continue to go. But but to be fair, like, the daily news still sounds like the news. Like, I'd be curious, like, how do you, when you perform on television, like, I mean, it's interesting because even on network television here on the news, um, it it, do, it is more conversational than it used to be. If you see somebody like Anderson yep. Cooper, it's much more conversational performer. But not everybody. Some of them are really yeah. corny. Sometimes I watch the TV news in the States. I was like, I can't believe that's how you say your lines. It's so corny. It's so corny. And it would, com- it would, it would hit the heart better, you know, like if, if you just said it. 
And and like so when you perform on television, like like what? How do you perform? Do you it's talk? So different. To, it's, it's, it is. Different. It's a very different vibe than what we're doing. It now. is. But it's a, also a different language, so that helps. But, but but you should come to Israel, watch the news, and then tell. I will actually. If there's yeah, a difference. when I'm there. Yeah, and and wait, and and but you perform it in a more of a, like I'm presenting the news, right? Like you, yes. yeah, yeah. Yes. But, and it would feel inappropriate to to be chattier. No, it's just a complete different. Person vibe, <laughs> but person. just different person. <laughs> it's a different person, but even in in a country that's so famously that's my like, evil twin on the really news. It's the evil twin. Yes, what, what, but hang on, just, but Ira, you're saying you're surprised that people are still doing the formal Tom Brokaw thing. I am because I think that actually, I mean, I think actually, like, I would think that most people in your job, not maybe not consciously, but unconsciously, feel the pressure to talk more like a normal person, and there definitely are people on television who do who are capable of it and still perform the lines. I mean, it's hard. You're reading off a teleprompter. Shit is happening fast. And also, some of the stuff that you're saying, there's no casual, like, performance of the thing you're saying. You know what I mean? Like, to report yeah. a school shooting or to report, you know, a bomb going off in Tel Aviv. Like, you know, just like, you, like, you, I don't know. Like, and so, and so, like, it's, it's, it would be hard to be a, a person, um, but I also think, like, you know, the laws of, like, we didn't make the laws of broadcasting. We're just obeying them. Like, the laws of broadcasting mm-hmm. are anything gets through to you more, the more it sounds like somebody's really speaking. Like, it, more, it sounds like spoken language. Like, it just gets mm-hmm. to you more. Like, that's why often on, on traditional television news, the only moments that feel like they have human quality are the quotes. When you get to, like, a quote, you know, from, from some real person. Um, so I'm like that. So sorry to get to my question. Like, so so, do you feel like you have to strike a balance between like talking the way you really mm-hmm. talk and then talking in that formal kind of thing? I think mostly it's formal, but there's a little bit, just a little bit of a human being. Wow, getting through the cracks, just a little. Do you do you see her as a character you who you play your TV person? I don't know if character because it's not acting, but it's a di- it's it is a different. It's she's. Different. I mean, me too. Can I say, like, like I'm working in a medium that's way more real, and I'm really trying to simulate my actual personality as best I can. And I also am working a kind of story where, like, actually, if I can think of something personal to say about each other, about myself, sorry, then then I know it'll get through to people more. Like, it's good on the radio to, like, actually, if I can excavate any moment from my week that will be connected to something that could be interesting, like, I try to do it. But, like, even there, I feel like the person who I'm playing on the radio is not exactly who I am because because yeah. who I am is un, is unedited and like and and like in a lot of ways way less interesting you know what I mean like like if you can compress down all the interesting things you can think in a week into an hour you can seem really like a really interesting person <laughs> whereas in real life like I, you know I'm cranky and like I don't know like I'm boring and I don't know like it's it's way like the the person who I am is like I th- like I think of the person who I am on the radio as me but definitely as like a much better version of me I think it's really interesting you you both actually but even you use the word performance that it's a performance even mm-hmm. when you're playing yourself and you're simulating your natural self so you know, and I, I don't know how scripted those apparently unscripted intros are, but I'm guessing they're scripted. Oh my and God, every word. Be, every word, but yeah. you deliver them as if this thought has just come to you at the spur yes. of the moment. There's a little hesitation. And that's part of the sort of, I think there is now this sort of podcast speak, which is the, well, I'm going to do it like this. And you throw in the little <laughs> hesitation, you know, and that's that. When you so say it that way, I feel horrible. <laughs> <laughs> and I got to thinking, hmm, maybe Ira does that. 
That's a very good imitation. No, not at all. Um, this has been wonderful, Ira Glass. Oh, really? We're hugely grateful to you coming on Unholy. And thank you very much. Thanks so thank much. Thank you so I've much. Enjoyed it was it. a pleasure. Thanks so much. That was an amazing conversation that I want to talk about, but I should mention that Ira Glass will be in Israel June 22nd at the Tel Aviv Museum in a conversation with um, wonderful Israeli author Edgar Keret. They're also uh, personal friends that will talk about storytelling and check out the uh, link for that event in our show notes. Jonathan, thoughts? Yeah, I, I mean, he's a mesmerizingly interesting man. I mean, he's founded this phenomenon this American life. And what I loved hearing that he remains absolutely closely involved in it. And you slightly feel that anyone who does anything to the highest level, that's how they do it. They remain completely obsessed about the detail. That's how you achieve that sort of level of excellence, I think. Yeah. And I, I found so much of what he said so uh, interesting. And it's amazing how you can go back to these episodes, like even if they're 20 years old and still have his amazing storytelling and the way he builds a story and the way he pulls you in. Um, is is really uh, uh, remarkable what he said about, you know, journalism and truth and going into this war without any weapons is something that will resonate. There's so much else there in that in that conversation, but that's something that that I will uh, uh, take and that will uh, resonate. Yeah, it was yeah. a great pleasure that's to hear. Why, that's why he's the best he is. Um, so we will stay on the topic of Chicago, if that's okay with you, just a little bit. Yes. You know that, that city is close to my heart and we're um, uh, close to winding up our conversation, but we do have to do our mention of chutzpah. This week, originally, I will do the mensch, and I read uh, this title from uh, the Jerusalem Post. It says, it reads, Inspired by Jewish Custom, Interfaith Coalition Erases Medical Debts for 2,000 People in Chicago. And it's a story about Pastor Chris uh, Harris and Rabbi Ari Hart of Chicago, who have decided together to uh, lead a uh, fundraiser uh, and to uh, cut the debts of, uh, as as the title says, more than 2,000 people in Chicago. It's medical debts. So it goes to the um, rules of uh, Shemitah, that every seven years all agricultural activity has to cease, but also, uh, maybe a lesser known, part of this is to erase all debts. So this is a beautiful story, um, and I thought that, that we should uh, we should present it before your, your chutzpah choice for this week. Let it be duly noted that a rabbi and priest edged out Her Majesty the Queen for this week's Mensch <laughs> No, Award I think it's winner. clear that she would be the, you know, but we talked about her at the beginning. Yeah, no, she, we, she got a Look she at you, look what we look what monarchy mention. did to you. You started out as someone yeah. who did not want to talk about it, and now you can't shut up about it. You want to talk about yeah. it at the top of the program, <laughs> the end of the program. This is a story that stayed, uh, broke out rather, of our own little cozy Jewish bubble and made news all around the world. <laughs> Uh, the, I love the new intro on the New York Post version of the story was, this was some Sabbath service. <laughs> and it refers, a lot of people know that during lockdown, um, bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah celebrations had to move to Zoom uh, because people couldn't be there in person. And it meant that people were watching the bar or bat mitzvah, um, you know, achieve adulthood um, by, you know, by watching it from their kitchens, from their from their homes, from their living rooms even, it seems, from their bedrooms. Because the story is that uh, a couple zoomed into services at a Minneapolis synagogue that was hosting a bat mitzvah and watched the ceremony uh, on Zoom, but they forgot to turn off their camera or hit mute as they began, says the New York Post, to make a mitzvah of their own, 
canoodling in full view of verklempt congregants who were subjected to the softcore sideshow for nearly an hour. An hour? Your post calls an impromptu version of Debbie Does Deuteronomy, which unfolded on May the 14th in Minneapolis's Bethel Synagogue. It went on for about 45 minutes. Oh, so the figure is being revised down, said one person who was there. She was walking around naked. She got dressed. He's in and out of Zoom. She was in the bed. Anyway, it's a whole thing. This is the festive, regal, elegant story you're bringing me on our 60th episode. The queen is celebrating 70 years on the throne. We are celebrating. And this is the story you choose to bring? Okay. I've taken us crashingly down market. But of (laughs) course, the, the, the... the point about um, the bar and bat mitzvah ceremony is it does turn you from a child into an adult, but this puts the adult uh, into um, into that ritual. It does make you think, uh, yeah. though, that when you know the Almighty told us to be fruitful and multiply, I'm not sure He actually meant during bat mitzvahs. But you know, I mean, they took it <laughs> they took it a step uh, further. I feel really sorry for the bat mitzvah girl, though, because now <laughs> her bat mitzvah is always going to be remembered for this. It doesn't matter whether she did her parsha well or badly, <laughs> what drosha she gave. This is only ever going to be remembered for this one event. But um, look, Mazaltov <laughs> to her, um, and maybe Mazaltov to the couple, because <laughs> obviously they, on some level, have still got it. Um, shall we say thank yous to uh, all those who deserve we should always give our reminder to our listeners that you can find us on Twitter and Instagram. We now, though, have, and we're very proud of this, a Facebook page. Um, Yonit and I are not world-class when it comes to doing things on what I still might think of as the Facebook. But you, if you know about Facebook, we're there. So join our Facebook group. Do chip in with your ideas and opinions of the episode. Our uh, Facebook Unholy group is called is Unholy Facebook. Podcast, Jonathan. Just uh, just so uh, people know how to find us. Oh, that's that's a crucial bit of information. So it's called Unholy Podcast. <laughs> and we will say our thank yous to Gaia Glazer, our producer, Omar Primat, who's our tech whiz, romantic head of podcasts, and Iradesh for original music. Jonathan, don't get too crazy on Jubilee, because uh, we need to meet next week. Yeah, after the platy jubes, we will meet. See you then, Yogi. See you.